Good morning, everybody. Um, so, uh, unfortunately, Pastor Miller is not going to be here today. Uh, he and his family are dealing a little bit with uh, some COVID stuff. Uh, so, Joe and I are kind of going to be leading the service today, and then uh, Pastor Miller has recorded his sermon, and we'll have that projected up on the wall uh, for you guys to to watch when that time comes. Um, so, a couple of uh, quick announcements. Um, so, most of the announcements you can see on the, on the back there, but. Uh, confirmation uh, today and evening prayer today are both canceled because uh, Pastor Miller is not available. Um, also, the uh, on the back page, it talks about the Wednesday Zoom Bible study with the great divorce. Um, and it says that it starts this week on Wednesday, but that's actually a bit of a typo. Uh, it is not starting this week, but it's starting on the 9th, on Wednesday the 9th. Um, so that's when the great divorce starts. So as it says there, if you want to contact uh, Pastor Miller about 
getting on that Zoom, uh, getting the Zoom link for that or getting your book, uh, please do so. Uh, and then also, we are not going to be doing communion today. So when we, when we come to that portion of the service, uh, we're going to skip uh, communion and we'll skip uh, most of the distribution hymns, although we will sing Jesus Paid It All, which is the last distribution hymn. Um, so we'll, you know, when we get to that portion of the service, Joe will remind you, but we're going to skip some of those hymns. So, all right, uh, please go ahead and stand and we'll start service. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord, have mercy upon us. Christ, have mercy upon us. Lord, have mercy upon us. Let us confess our sin to God. O Lord, merciful Father, you keep covenant and steadfast love with those who love you and keep your commandments. We confess that we have not listened to your servants, the prophets. We have not heeded your law, nor have we rejoiced in your gospel. We confess that things have fallen apart. But Lord, you keep covenant even when we do not. Your love is steadfast when ours is frail and fallible. You are faithful even when we are faithless. We want you to be our God, and we want to be your covenant people. Grant us the gift of faith. By your Holy Spirit, work in us steadfastness and singleness of heart, that we might manifest your love in the keeping of your commandments and the living of your gospel. O Lord, merciful Father, hear our prayers in the name of your well-beloved Son, Jesus Christ, the mediator of the new and eternal covenant, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Because of Jesus, God has forgiven all our sin. Hear the gospel of Christ from 1 John. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven on account of Jesus' name. Amen. You can remain standing for the first hymn.
Let's read together uh, Psalm 71. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me and rescue me. Incline your ear to me and save me. Be to me a rock of refuge, to which I may continually come. You have given the command to save me, for you are my rock and my fortress. Rescue me, O my God, from the hand of the wicked, from the grasp of the unjust and cruel man. For you, O Lord, are my hope, my trust, O Lord, from my youth. Upon you I have leaned from before my birth. You are he who took me from my mother's womb. My praise is continually of you. I have been as a portent to many, but you are my strong refuge. My mouth is filled with your praise and with your glory all the day. Do not cast me off in the time of old age. Forsake me not when my strength is spent. For my enemies speak concerning me. Those who watch for my life consult together and say, God has forsaken him. Pursue and seize him, for there is none to deliver him. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. The epistle reading is from 1 Corinthians. Um, we're reading a tiny bit of uh, chapter 12, but mostly chapter 13 here. Uh, just a quick reminder, the past two Sundays we've been reading through uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, uh, and this is where Paul was talking about uh, the body of Christ, uh, the, the church being the body of Christ, and how uh, each member of the church has been given um, gifts uh, by the Holy Spirit, uh, but not a single person has been given all of the gifts. And so for us to be the complete body of Christ, we need to do church together, we need to do life together. Um, and then now in, in chapter 13, Paul kind of amps that up and talks about how those gifts are actually worthless um, if they are done without love. Uh, so, so not only do we need to do life together, but we also need to be doing it in love. And the love that he's referring to is, of course, the selfless love that Christ modeled for us. So here uh, we begin in 1 Corinthians. I will show you a still more excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. And now he's beginning a section that I'm sure you've heard at weddings uh, a lot, but uh, remember the context here that God is not, er, that Paul is not necessarily talking about husband and wife, but he's talking about Christians, that, that this is the way all Christians should, should treat those around them. In verse four, he says, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up my childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please rise for the Holy Gospel. A quick comment about verse 40 here uh, in, in Luke. Uh, verse 40 talks about people coming to see Jesus at sunset, which in a time when you don't have streetlights, uh, it seems kind of like a strange timing for people to now be coming to Jesus. But uh, in, verse 40, in verse 31, the first verse there, it talks about this happening 
uh, on the Sabbath. And a reminder about Jewish tradition at the time that uh, on the Sabbath, Jews were not supposed to be traveling long distances or carrying heavy loads. So uh, the Sabbath officially ended at sun, sundown. So that's why um, the people come at sunset, because that's when they are allowed to, according to tradition. So, the Holy Gospel according to St. Luke, the fourth chapter. Glory to you, O Lord. Jesus went down to, to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath, and they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. And he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak, because they knew that he was the Christ. And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him, and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. You can be seated for the sermon hymn.
Good morning. As you know by now, um, I'm not there in person. Uh, we have some COVID at our house, so we're laying low and staying out of the way. And uh, this is not what I like to do. This is not my first choice to preach on video. But unfortunately, when uh, we get the positive test on Saturday morning, it's a little bit late to find somebody to come in and preach. And my usual go-to, uh, Pastor Lang, God bless him, is out of town spending time with his son right now up in Minnesota. And so I'm real thankful to Dave and Joe for volunteering to come in and help lead the service. And uh, it's real super awkward, I know, to be sta staring at the wall right now, uh, seeing this projected on the wall. It's awkward for me, too. I don't like to preach uh, without you guys um, being there. I always feel it's a sort of um, um, it's a give and take uh, between the two of us when, when I talk and, and you respond to me. Uh, and we don't have that here. So this is just really weird and awkward, but it's the best that we can do. And uh, hopefully next week uh, we'll be back to normal. But I'd like to talk about uh, Esther 5 and 6 this morning. And so I'm going to read that for us and make a few comments along the way. And then just spend a few minutes digging into um, four things that I kind of want us to see uh, in terms of uh, from this text, in terms of the problems that God deals with uh, as he's uh, redeeming us and redeeming our world and his solution and the way it looks, the way it looks in our everyday lives. So Esther 5 and 6, if, you have, if you're uh, watching online, grab your Bible and um, open it up to Esther 5. If you got your bulletin there in the sanctuary, you can open Esther 5. And I'm going to read a little bit to us here. <clears throat> on the third day, Esther put on her royal robe. So this is, uh, remember last time she, uh, Esther, is uh, has been told by Mordecai what Haman is up to. And she says, okay, I'll go in and I'll speak with uh, Xerxes, even though it might cost me my life. She tells Mordecai to get all the Jews and to fast, fast for three days and uh, pray. And on the third day, that's where we're at now. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight, and he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter, and the king said to her, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given you, even to the half of my kingdom. That's, uh, no doubt that's a figure of speech. We see that uh, different kings in the ancient world say that at different times. Probably he's not willing to give her half the kingdom. It's just a way of saying Ask for it, and you got it. it. Definitely, she's gained his favor. Remember, that was the risk that she was running, is that if she didn't have his favor, he could have her executed for intruding into his presence unannounced. But he does. But she does have his favor. Um, verse 4, Esther says, If it please the king, let the king and Haman, uh, the Jews' archenemy, come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. Then the king said, Bring Haman quickly so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, What is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Then Esther answered, My wish and my request is, if I had found favor in the sight of the king, and if it pleased the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them. And tomorrow I will do as the king has said. Why doesn't Esther uh, just tell him right there what she wants? Well, uh, we're not told in the text. Uh, but more likely than not, it, it builds suspense. It indicates to the king that what she's going to request is serious enough that she's going to do a double banquet to get around to the point. Also within the story, this double banquet forms a middle point to the story. Um, remember, I think I mentioned this a few weeks ago when I was preaching uh, earlier on in the book, that Esther is framed around three sets of double banquets. There's the first banquet, there's the first set of banquets at the beginning, the banquet that uh, Xerxes throws, massive party, and um, uh, Vashti, the queen, gets deposed. And then the second of those banquets is a banquet for Esther, the new queen, coming in. The story is going to end with a double banquet, a double festival of uh, Jews' deliverance, and we'll get there in chapters 9, uh, nine and 10 
uh, coming up in a week or so, a couple weeks or so. And then here in the middle, you have a double banquet too. And lots of times, good stories will have these, they, they, you know, these recurring themes. Uh, and they function in a good story. They function as signposts along the way of the story to point out uh, a certain narrative thing that happens that recurs or a theme that the uh, author wants to bring up. Uh, as I was thinking about this, the only really good example that popped into my mind right off the bat was uh, the Tuppence theme in Mary Poppins. Uh, so the theme of, you know, what are you going to do with the two pence that you have? Uh, are you going to feed the birds or are you going to invest it in the bank? Are you going to buy a kite with it? And so this theme pops up throughout the story. The movie, I've never read the book, but in the movie, the, the theme of Tuppence pops up to kind of frame the themes that the, that the, that the writer of the story wants you to ask as you're, as you're watching that movie, how, what, what do I value in my life? What is important to me? And here in the story, this theme of double banquets provides a narrative structure, the fall of Vashti, the power of Ahasuerus, Xerxes, the rise of the middle two banquets is the rise, the, the fall of Haman, and the rise of Esther's, uh, the Esther's power, and then the final two, um, the final two uh, banquets highlight the fall of God's enemies and the rescuing of God's people, the rise of God's people. And so, as we uh, read today and then get into that, that's one of the things that's going on with this double banquet here is that the author is trying to set up this theme for us of as Vashti and Ahasuerus tangle in a, in a huge power play. The same thing is going to happen with Esther and with uh, um, Xerxes and Haman. Esther's going to come out on top, but instead of a power play designed to hurt other people, as we get with the first set of banquets, we get Esther and God's power designed to save and rescue people. Anyway, back into the story. Verse 9, Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart, but when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home, and he sent and bought his, brought his friends and his wife Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. And then Haman said, Even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king. Yet all this is worth nothing to me so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows fifty cubits high be made. That's, uh, that's too high for a gallows to be made. That's, that's, that's not reasonable. Uh, it's probably just uh, uh, hyperbole on their part. Make the biggest gallows you can think of and make sure everybody in the city can see this guy publicly killed and shamed. Um, fifty cubits is real high. I think my... Um, my uh, marginal note has that as 18 inches. A cubit is about 18 inches. And so you're talking about 75 feet high. Um, that's not uh, that's not reasonable. Probably hyperbole. And in the morning, tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it, then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Taman, and he had the gallows made. On that night, the king could not sleep. So, so there's tension building here. And the tension is this, is that Esther has put off for one day the request that Haman be judged and the Jews delivered. Meanwhile, Haman has decided that before the feast where Esther is going to ask for the Jews to be delivered, he's going to go in prior to that and ask that Mordecai be executed. And so there's a race against time. Is It looks like Mordecai's going to lose because it looks like Haman's going to get to Xerxes first before Esther can. And so this story comes up. On that night, the king could not sleep. And he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the Chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. Remember this story where Mordecai finds out about these two guys who are plotting to execute, to assassinate the king. And he reports it and the, the coup attempt is put down. Mordecai is not rewarded at that time, though. Um, the king asked, uh, the, the king Xerxes asked verse three, what honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? And the king's young men who attended him said, nothing's been done for him. They're looking at the records and they can see that nothing was done for him. And the king said, who is in the court? Now, Haman had just entered the court, outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. 
And the king's young men told him, Haman is there standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. So Haman came in and the king said to him, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said, so he's going to go for it. He's going to ask for something big, some big public display of his own glory. Haman said to the king, for the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be bought, brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. Basically, dress him up exactly like the king, and let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. And the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. So Haman, we're not told about his emotional response to hearing that news right there. We'll get a little bit of that in just a second. So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai, and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. And then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house, mourning and with his head covered. He's crushed by this. And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise man and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai, before you have before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. And while they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. Well, uh, big bad things are happening here, and big good things are happening here. This is the um, kind of the uh, the crisis moment. This and the next chapter that we'll look at next week are kind of the crisis moment of the whole story. The problem in the story, of course, is Haman and his desire to destroy the Jews. The problem in all of our stories is the same as Haman's story. It's the problem of idolatry. This is the first point I want to make, is that idolatry has impact. Idolatry has bad consequences. The idols that we worship, the idols that people around us worship, are damaging. They do damage to us, and they do damage to other people. Haman's idol here is the lust for power. Look at verses 11 through 13 again. Haman recounted to his family, his wife and family, the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. And then Haman said, even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. I'm the highest in the land except for Ahasuerus. And tomorrow also I'm invited by her together with the king. Yet, verse 13, check this out. All this is worth nothing. All this is worth nothing to me. So long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. He has this lust for power. It's his God. It's the thing that controls him. It's his idol. And until he gets all of it, he's not going to be satisfied. Our idols never leave us satisfied until we get all of them. And we could never, ever get all of them. They're surely going to destroy us. Think about what the impact, think about the destruction that Haman is doing with this line here. Of course, I mean, the big destruction is he's going to, he's going to wipe out a whole ethnic group just to make sure that he gets ultimate power. There's this one guy who won't bow down to him. So he's going to destroy all these people, all these families, to make sure that he has this power. That's what idols do. They, they drive us to step on people and conquer people and destroy people and to not let anything stand in our way, even if it damages those people to get them. Look, what, look who else it, it, it damages, though. Look back at verse 11. Haman recounts to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions. Look at all the, so he's, you know, he's talking to his family there, right? And he's like, I got all this money. I got these kids. I've got these great kids, but so, so, I'm, so presumably his sons are listening to him say this. I've got these sons, but none of it's worth anything to me because this one guy won't bow down to me. So idols do. So imagine being his son and hearing him say that this is my father. And he's proud of me, but it's not worth anything. Ultimately, at the end of the day, it's not worth anything to him because his idol's not satisfied. This is the problem. It's a universal problem. If we don't worship the one true God in Jesus Christ, we will worship something else. And it will do damage to us. There's nothing, every single one of us has something in our lives about which we say, 
nothing is worth anything to me unless I have that. And unless that that is Jesus, we are going to create destruction. Nothing is worth anything. Take the world, but give me Jesus is the only way to actually love and serve our neighbors. What is the world to me? We sing sometimes that great um, um, Bach chorale. What is the world to me with all this vaunted church? My Jesus is the only thing that I need. And as long as we say that, we're good. We're worshiping the one true God. We're going to be liberated to serve and love and, and, and create health and build other people up. But when we don't, we're going to do damage, the kind of damage that Haman is doing. You see this all throughout the scriptures. You see people throughout the Bible say, I have to have this one thing. I will not be happy unless I get this one thing. My idols control me. And the thing about it is this, is if you, whatever you worship is either going to give you life. It's if you worship the one true God in Jesus Christ, or it's going to kill you. It's Rachel saying to Jacob, give me children or I die. He says, what, what am I? Like, am I, what, am I, am I God? I can't give you children. Well, she gets her, she gets her child and it kills her. She dies in childbirth with Benjamin. Give me children or I'll die. Some of us have struggled with this, wanting kids, um, wanting some sort of family relationship, thinking that unless unless I have this, I won't be happy. That's wrong. That's a great way to create destruction. Unless we don't have Jesus, we won't be happy. What about Samson? Wanting... uh, he wants these women so bad. He wants the Philistine woman so bad. He t- tells his parents, you know, get me this woman. And she said, and they say, no, don't, you know, don't, don't marry a Philistine. No, get me this woman here. This is the one that's right for me. He says, my heart wants her. Delilah. He wants these women so badly that it ends up costing him his sight and his life. Judas sells Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. He wants money so badly that he's willing to sell out a friend. Does it make him happy? No, it drives him to suicide. Our idols will always kill us. They'll never satisfy us. Sex, money, and power can never replace God. They can never be something that will give us ultimate meaning. And when we say, my Christianity is great, my family is great, my friends are great, but I won't be happy unless I have some sort of idol, we're going to create destruction. How does God deal with the destruction that Haman's causing here in this story? Three things that I want to point out. I'll try to be a little bit quick here. First of all, choreographed coincidence. I use that term intentionally because it, it, it's, there's a lot of coincidence happening in this story. I mean, God, of course, is not mentioned here. He's not an overt player in the story. Although, like I've argued, he is definitely at work. This is his story that he's writing. He's saving his people. And I try to capture that with the word choreographed. It's a coincidence, but it's choreographed. I borrowed that word. I should be uh, upfront with you. I borrowed that word from a song by David Wilcox, a folk singer, a song called uh, Big Mistake, in which he argues that when you look at, um, and as far as I know, David Wilcox is not a believer. He's not a Christian. But he argues that when you look at the world, the way that uh, the human body is made, the way that we respond to things like falling leaves in the fall, which is much deeper and more profound than just seeing some detritus from trees falling to the ground. When you think about love, the love that we have for our friends and our significant others and our spouses and our families, when you think about that love, there's some, there's gotta be something more there than just the randomness, the meaninglessness of chaos and coincidence. The world would tell us if you believe in philosophical materialism, the world would tell us that there is no meaning to anything, that everything is random. There's no purpose. Things happen by chance. And in that framework, the only thing that really accomplishes anything is power, because there's really no truth or good or evil. But if Christianity is true, and we believe that it is, I believe that it is, then the story of Esther is filled up with choreography, God creating coincidences in order to bring about his plan. Have you ever felt like the only way out of your bad situation is for something crazy weird to happen? God creates coincidences sometimes. Coincidences, again, put those in scare quotes, in order to bring these sorts of things about. Remember one time when I was running from the Lord and I had abandoned Christianity, but I was starting to feel the emptiness, the the horror of my own self-worship. But I thought, I'm just trapped by this. And I know I've told some of you this story before. Just felt trapped by this, you know, the horror of my own self-satisfaction and the the selfish, damaging choices that I'd made. And 
I was standing, I was going somewhere over to St. Louis with Harry. I think that we were probably going to a blues game. He was just a little guy at the time, a little tiny guy. And he had been singing this song that Angela had taught him. And as I'm sitting there next to him, I wasn't really listening, paying attention to him, probably holding his hands. He was little. And I was thinking, like, I wish that I could be a different person. I wish I still believed in something that had purpose and meaning and love and hope. But I'm just trapped in this. And I, I suddenly heard his little tiny voice saying, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And um, I just remember thinking in, in the moment, like, oh, that's weird that he would be singing that while I was struggling with this. No, that's not weird. I remember thinking there's something to that. This is somehow an answer to prayer. Somebody's prayers, my wife's, my mom's, my friends. I'm not sure. But this coincidence of my son singing this song that I needed to hear in that moment was something that God did. This is encouraging to me, too, because honestly, the the, the parallel stories with Esther, uh, and I mentioned this before, Joseph and Daniel, you know, frequently in our lives, God doesn't always, sometimes he does, but God doesn't always give us visions and dreams where he tells us what he's up to. God doesn't always perform big, miraculous saving events like he does with Daniel, rescuing from a lion's den or rescuing uh, the three uh Um, the three Jewish servants from the fiery furnace. Sometimes it looks like God's not overtly active at all. And yet these coincidences that he keeps on bringing up, he keeps on choreographing our life for good, for bringing about good things, choreographed coincidence. Second thing is great reversal. God throughout scripture loves plot twists. He loves it when things are going bad and he shifts them to make it good. Daniel's a great version of this story. So is Joseph. People sold into slavery, and God turns it about for good. Esther, of course, is a great version of this. It's common throughout Scripture, though. I'm going to give you a few examples. First Samuel chapter 2, Hannah has been given a child, Samuel, that she prayed for. And she prays this wonderful psalm uh, to, to God. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I just want to read some, some of the part of the psalm that focuses on this reversal that God loves to reverse things. Things look like they're going a certain way, and God shifts them and turns them into the way he wants them to go. There's none holy like the Lord, Hannah says, for there's none besides you. There's no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread. But those who are hungry now have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven children, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to shale the grave, and he raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor for the pillar of the earth. The pillars of the earth are the Lord's and on them. He has set the world. God's completely in charge. He loves to reverse things. He loves to come in and rescue the day. Here's a great proverb. Proverb 29, 23. One's pride will bring him low, but he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. Jesus says something similar several times in the Gospels. For instance, in Luke chapter 13, verse 30, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. Matthew 23, verse 12, he says, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Finally, in Luke 1, verse 52 and 53, Mary sings a song after she finds out that she's having the baby Jesus and that her cousin Elizabeth is going to have John the Baptist, a psalm which in many ways is mirrored and built on Hannah's psalm from 1 Samuel chapter 2. And just a couple of lines from that. He, God, has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. Well, that's kind of like the subtitle of the book of Esther, isn't it? He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. You know, that's not just the subtitle of the book of Esther. That's the subtitle of your life. That's the subtitle of God's plan to rescue his people all throughout the ages, not just in Scripture, but even now. Things sometimes look bad. They look like they're out of control. It looks like those who are enslaved to their idolatry is going to win, are going to win. It looks like the money's going to win. It looks like the political power is going to win. 
God loves to reverse those stories. He loves to put things. He loves to, uh, he loves to turn things around and put a twist in the plot. The biggest one, of course, the biggest plot twist of all time is the death of God himself, isn't it? Think about that. There's a, the, the gospels tell us that it was Satan that put into Judas's heart to betray Jesus. Think about that. Satan thinks he's won. Satan tells Judas, go betray Jesus. Think about the celebrations that Satan and his minions must have been having on the night when Jesus died. And for the day after that, thinking, yes, we finally won. A good example of this, of course, is uh, C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, where the White Witch has made this deal where Aslan has to let himself be killed in order to rescue the human child who's betrayed them, betrayed, be, be, betrayed him and betrayed his brothers, uh, brother and sisters. And she thinks she's won, just like Satan thinks that he's won. And then the greatest plot twist of all time, the dead one comes back to life. God, God is so powerful. If he can raise his son from the dead, he can fix your problems. He can rescue you from the situation that you're in. And the way ultimately that he does this in this story, and this is going to parallel a lot of what I said last week, is new royalty. Our current royalty is not very good. The royalty of our culture is money, power, celebrity, influence, relevancy. It's not very good. It's not gotten us into a good spot. It's actually built on idolatry. It's built on a lust for power and money and sex. What God does, though, is he gives us new royalty. That's what we need, a new king. The bad King Xerxes and his bad second man, Haman, need to be deposed. How does God do this? He doesn't, he doesn't actually get ever, he doesn't actually kick Pharaoh off the throne. He doesn't kick Nebuchadnezzar off the throne. He doesn't kick Xerxes off the throne, but he puts his own king on to work around them, to work over them, to actually really be in charge, even though they think that they are. The way that this comes out in the story is kind of fascinating, I think. Very first line of our reading, Esther chapter five. Now, I mentioned last week that it looked like Esther was a little bit you know, a little bit squeamish about this notion of having to step up and advocate for the Jews. A little bit like, I don't know if I can do this. But then she decides, I'm going to do it. Go pray for me. Fast for me three days. I'll do this. I'll represent us. In Exodus chapter 5, verse 1, it says this. So big, this is the, maybe the biggest turning point in the whole story. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes. You know what that says literally in Hebrew? It doesn't say robes. It says on the third day, Esther put on her royalty. Esther put on her royalty. Finally, this is the turning point in the story. Finally, Esther's in charge. It's funny, isn't it? The whole story happened because Xerxes was not going to let this woman, Vashti, show him up in front of everybody. Esther actually is an embodied symbol Every time you look at Esther, you know, well, that's the king's woman that he got because women aren't going to run him. And yet Esther puts on her royalty. Esther is now in charge. And for the rest of the story, you know who's in charge of the most powerful empire in the world? Well, Queen Esther is. But mainly it's the God that Queen Esther serves. This is how God gets control. He puts his new royalty in. There's another great way that this comes out in the story is um, down in verse 5. The king says, bring Haman quickly so that we may do as Esther has asked. So again, I, uh, to, to, what the Hebrew actually says is this. It's, it says this, but um, the way it's phrased is even stronger. It says, uh, bring Haman quickly so that we may do the word of Esther. So we may do the word of Esther. The word of fill in the blank throughout the Bible is a sign of sovereignty. The word of the Lord is kind of the big one, right? But here in the book of Esther, it's the word of Xerxes. The word of Xerxes goes out earlier on in the story. And that's Xerxes' power. And his word embodies that power and tells people what to do. But now it's the word of Esther that's in charge. Esther has put on her royalty. The whole backdrop of, of uh, I said, of Xerxes' story is to... Uh, women don't. Women aren't in charge of me, but here now Esther is in charge. The whole backdrop of Haman's story is these Jews aren't going to be in charge of me, but guess what? Esther now, Esther the Jew is now going to be in charge of Haman's destiny, and we'll see next week brings him to destruction. What we need is a new king. God gives His people here the new royalty, Esther, and that's what He does with Jesus. Jesus is the King of the world, the King of the universe. He's completely in charge. 
Political powers come and go. God raises them up and he puts them down. And we get frustrated because they're not the ones we want. Or we get elated because they are the ones that we want. But at the end of the day, it's King Jesus who is the true king. And we, who are his people, are actually in charge of the universe, exercising that authority through him. Now, it's not the kind of power that we want because we're still worldly too. We still struggle with idols. We want the money. We want the political power. It's the power of the gospel. It's the power of love. It's the power of self-sacrifice. It's the power of giving up our own agendas to serve our neighbors, many of whom don't even believe in what we believe in, many of whom are frustrated that we even exist. And yet our presence here in this world is like salt and like light, Jesus says. It's knowledge. It's preservation. That's the kind of king that Jesus is. Jesus doesn't use the power of the world. He doesn't use an army. He doesn't use money. He doesn't use political maneuvers. He uses the power of his own self-sacrifice, the self-sacrifice of God. Go read John 18 and 19 if you get a chance this week. Strongly encourage you to do that. There's a great interaction between Pilate and Jesus about what is the meaning of power. You'll find there what Jesus is talking about. You'll find there what Esther is talking about. The power of self-sacrifice in the name of God, in the name of Jesus for the sake of others, is the most powerful force in the world. Jesus is going to rule and reign forever and ever. The position that he's put in, put us in sometimes looks bad, sometimes looks unfortunate, sometimes looks like it's out of control, sometimes looks like certain defeat. It looks like the gods of this world, the gods of money and power and politics and influence are going to crush us. And yet Jesus always wins. He is the new royalty. He is our sovereign and loving Savior. And he promises that he's going to rescue us. Amen. Stand with me and let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for loving us. We ask that you would let that love spill over into each of our relationships with family, friends, co-workers, and everyone else. Enable us to reflect your love, which is patient and kind, does not envy or boast, is not arrogant or rude, and rejoices with the truth. And God, we ask that you would restore those relationships in our lives that are damaged or broken. Bridge the gaps between us to the glory of your holy name. Lord, in your mercy. Father, you know all things, and by your word, nations rise and fall. Help us to place our trust in you alone. Grant us discernment and faith that we may well represent your kingdom in this broken world. We ask that you would be with our elected leaders and all those in positions of authority, that their actions may be motivated by trust in you. Lord, in your mercy. Lord, build up and strengthen the relationships among your people here at St. James and throughout the world. Solidify yourself as the bedrock of those relationships. We ask that you would be with those who are struggling with depression anxiety, illness, pain, addiction, finances, anger, or grief. Grant us relief and help us to comfort one another in times of trouble. Lord, in your mercy. And not only this, Lord, but allow us to share in each other's joys. We thank you for what you're doing here at St. James and everywhere else, and we pray you will continue to foster more and more relationships in our lives that are built upon faith in your Son's death and resurrection. All these things we bring before you in his name. Amen. Now let's confess our faith in the words of the Nicene Creed. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried, and the third day he rose again according to the scriptures and ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father. And he will come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead, whose kingdom will have no end. And I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, 
who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And I believe in one holy Christian and apostolic church. I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and I look for the resurrection of the dead in the life of the world to come. Now let us pray together in Jesus' name the prayer that he taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. You may be seated and we'll sing uh, Jesus Paid It All. Now let your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all people, to be a light to lighten the Gentiles, and to be the glory of your people Israel. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen.
The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord look upon you with favor and give you his peace. Amen. Go in peace.